ask that you would uh, take God's Word into your hand and open to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. If you don't know where the book of Acts is at, uh, in the middle uh, part, about 68% of the way through uh, the Bible, you'll find uh, uh, the New Testament, which starts with the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are the four Gospels, and then after John is the book of Acts. As you can see on the screen, uh, just a quick mention, if you're uh, sitting on the right side of your pew, please uh, go ahead and uh, pass the Friendship Registry, uh, making note that you're worshiping with us this morning and look to the different uh, events and uh, programs that are going on to fill out whether you're going to be a part of those or not. Acts chapter 9, we are in a series that we have entitled The Amazing Change, and uh, what a Wonderful prelude uh, to see two men uh, be baptized, to hear about another man giving his life uh, to Jesus Christ. This is what the Christian life is all about. This is why uh, the church uh, is here. Because it is God's desire for people of the world to be a part of an amazing change. We learned in week one of this series that we've got a problem. We have a flawed standing before God because of sin and our desire to uh, lead our own lives and to have ownership over all that we do. Uh, we have turned away from God and we have made gods out of other things. And God says that is sin. We have missed the mark of His holiness and pursued things uh, that are not good for us, that are unholy. And as a result of that, we have a problem. And the only way we can fix this problem is when an amazing change takes place. When a person bows the knee to Jesus Christ, sees Christ for all that He is, that He is the only way, the only truth, the only life, He bows the knee to Christ Jesus and gives His life over to Him so that God and Christ Jesus may lead Him in the way of everlasting that's what Acts 9 is all about. Acts 9 is about a man who hated Christianity, who hated Christ, who hated anybody who even partnered up or even uh, identified themselves with Jesus. His name was Saul. Now Saul was a religious man, but he was not a man who uh, had any desire to know Jesus Christ, to uh, know the power uh, that Christ Jesus uh, gives but on the way to go and uh, put a whole bunch of Christians in jail, that was his job as a Pharisee to go and find these renegades who had uh, walked away, if you will, from the national faith to pursue this Jesus. He heads up to a city called Damascus, present day Syria. And he goes and he wants to be a part of taking them in and putting them in jail for breaking uh, their laws. But midway through the trip, a light shines before him. He's thrown to the ground and he hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He looks up and says, who are you? It's Jesus. I'm Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting, the scripture says. He stands up. He can't see. And he's led into Damascus, not to go and take people into uh, become prisoners, uh, but to go exactly where Jesus Christ had told them to a home. By a, a home that was owned by a man named Judas. And we come to this part again in verses 17 through 19, where the story picks up. Because for three days, Saul hasn't eaten anything, he's drank no drink, he just finds himself praying. 
something has changed in his life. And a man comes to the door and his name is Ananias. And this is what it says. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up. He was baptized just as we saw just a couple moments ago. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And then it says he spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. I don't want to get into rehashing last week, but we saw in this text three things that talk about this issue of fellowship, this issue of sharing, this issue of partnership. Here was Saul, an enemy of Ananias, an enemy of Christians. And in a small amount of time, from the point he meets Jesus, three days there seems to be a change. Now, this is a secondary change to the change of salvation that takes place. There's a change of the heart when it comes to the people of God. Saul wanted to take these people in and put them in jail. Saul even had given approval to kill one of them. But now he was finding himself being loved by these people. Look at what Ananias says. He says, Brother Saul. He He didn't have to call him brother, but he did. It says he was baptized. He he came into the family of God uh, by recognizing and identifying himself as a Christian. He says, I'm one of you. And then it says he spent several days with the disciples. What an amazing time that must have been. Just a time of getting to know this Saul. A time for Saul to get to know the people, to associate with them. And notice what it says in the text. Now I know this per se involves uh, the physical regaining of strength. But it seems that there's no doubt in my mind that there would also have been a regaining of strength spiritually, emotionally, and a strength in relationships as well. Speculation, but it would seem from what he does right after this text that something amazing is taking place in his life. You see, the reason for fellowship that we see in Acts 9 is for us to, if you will, regain our strength. The reason we come together week in and week out is because we too have been a part of an amazing change. We too have been identified uh, as Christians, giving our lives over to Him. And we come together to worship, to study God's Word, to spend time together so we can be sent out into this world strengthened, encouraged, built up so we can go do the purpose the purposes of God that He has for us to reach our world with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here today. And it involves this term of fellowship. I told you uh, last week, fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, which literally means uh, to have something in common, uh, to be partners, uh, if you will. The, the best way to uh, look at, at koinonia uh, is, uh, is two people who are heading in the same direction. I was watching uh, the other day on uh, one of the sports channels. They were doing a rowing competition. You know, those long, slender boats and all uh, those uh, men or women that are in 
in the boat and they're sitting there and they're rowing together. If you will, it's kind of the picture of koinonia. They're all in a process heading for a certain uh, focus. That's what our fellowship is all about. Us working together, having a common goal, a common purpose to do what? To head in the same uh, direction. You don't see when those rowers are rowing, uh, if it was me, just to have some fun, I'd go the opposite way and start splashing the people in front of me. But that's not what we see when it comes to fellowship. Now, in week, uh, last week we looked at point number one and we saw a couple things. What, what does it mean um, that uh, we have fellowship? Well, the first reason we see... Uh, is that we have a common Savior. We have a common Savior. Turn in your Bibles for a moment, or or for the rest of the time we'll be there. Uh, Philippians chapter 1. That was our text. We were going to expand this idea of what what Paul may have been uh, seeing uh, in Acts 9 and seeing what he writes later on in his life of what he says uh, to the people. Now... uh, Let's look at uh, what he says together. As we do, let us stand for the reading of, of God's word. And uh, let's listen to these words that speak of this fellowship. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with all the overseers, that's elders and deacons, now grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership. That's the word koinonia there. In the gospel from the first day until now. I'm being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now God can testify how long or how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, I'm going to pray. This is my prayer for you. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Father, we come before you. Lord, we want to have this kind of heart. Lord, we want to have this kind of love. But to be able to do it, we all must come before you and say, you are our Savior, you are our Lord. And Lord, to then, uh, because of what you've said and what you've identified as your will in your word, that we would head in the same direction, having the same obligation, having the same affection for one another. Lord, the world will not know that we are any different unless we love one another. And Lord, that is uh, the very heart of this fellowship. Saul was changed by it. It impacted his life, Lord, as you know, in dramatic ways because of the people you allowed to be around him. And Lord, we need that as well. So Lord, teach us what it means to love one another. Teach us what it means to fellowship. That we would not look at our American definition of this word, but we would look at your definition and understand it and live it out. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. The first place Paul goes to when he speaks of this fellowship is that they have a common savior. A common Savior. He says a couple times in verse 1 that we are servants of Christ Jesus. And then he says to all the saints in Christ. 
We have the same Savior. I talked about that last week. I'm not going to go into much detail about it. But to give us some background, there are three things that happen as a result of us having a common Savior. First, we have a common Father. We have a common Father. He speaks of our Father, the, uh, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means when we come together, if we call ourselves Christians, that we have the same DNA. We're of the same substance. Number two, uh, we have the same spirit living inside of us. So we have the same workings within us going on. Number three, we have been given the word of God. So we all live by the same rule book or the same guide. It's the same thing. We're not all coming from a different point saying this is my authority and this is my authority. We're saying the word of God is our authority. We're going to do what it says. And finally, we see because we have the same father, we have the same source of hope and the same source of strength. So it means we're all at the same level when it comes to the abilities that we have. The same God, the same Father that has endowed us with wonderful gifts and abilities is there at our disposal. The second thing we saw was that we enjoy the same favor. He says grace, this unmerited favor. And what this reminds us of is that we have all have the same past. Every one of us, no matter if you, uh, as you heard today, there were two different testimonies. And every one of us would have a different testimony. Whether we trusted Christ as a young person or we trusted Christ last night, we all have the same testimony. And that is the following. I was blind, but now I see. Whether you were four or 400, it doesn't matter. You were a sinner and now you're saved. We enjoy that same favor. We enjoy that same salvation. No one, none of us got saved any other way by the, but by the person and work of Christ Jesus. Finally, we have the same, uh, we enjoy, uh, the same freedom. We have peace. We have the same, uh, sense that we've been released from sin. We no longer have the penalty of condemnation in our lives. And now we can, without anxiety or concern, place all our trust, all our faith, not just in our salvation, but that God works all things out for the good of those he loves and are called according to his purposes. We have that hope. So when the world caves in, when political unrest takes place, when there's no money left in the bank account, we as believers can say, it doesn't matter because I have a God in heaven. I don't have to worry. I don't have to be anxious. The Bible says, don't be anxious. Give it to your God in heaven. So what does all that mean? That means when we come together, we, we're, we're together. We're unified. We're enjoying the same benefits that have come. And so what does that mean? It, it means what John, uh, Jesus prayed for in John 17, that you and I would be one. Remember, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying to his father right before he's about to be arrested. And he prays and he says, Lord, let them be one just as you and I are one. He's saying, I, Lord, I want Village Bible Church to speak with one heart, one mind, to have the same love for one another. But not just for us. This isn't just about us, but all who call upon the name of the Lord. Whether uh, for, uh, from Africa, Asia, whether from America, whether we speak the same language or not, the Bible says that every tribe, tongue, and nation will, will speak the praises of Christ Jesus. The ones that we are to love, the ones we are to have fellowship with, doesn't stop in America. It goes across the world. It doesn't just focus in on the color of our skin. It goes to all colors, tints, sizes, shapes, 
all of us have a common connection and we are to be together. But sadly, that isn't always the case. Now, why is that? If we have the same father, enjoy the same favor, um, and experience the same freedom, you would think that, okay, we should be able to be together. But that isn't always the case. If you've been in a church for any amount of time, you know there's going to be times where the church is uh, the opposite of being unified. And I believe it has a result of this issue of fellowship. When I was a, uh, in college, I, I've told you before, I wasn't that great of a student, but uh, I saw a, a whole bunch of banners going up uh, out at Wabansi, and there was a big election going on, not very different than what we just were a part of, and people were campaigning uh, for the student body president uh, position. And then there were student senators, all a part of the student government thing. Now, I can tell you, I didn't go to school to do any of that. I didn't go to school very much for any reason at all. Um, but uh, my mom signed me up. I went. And uh, a couple buddies of mine uh, were talking one day. And we said, why would anybody want to be a part of the student government? And uh, so we started asking around. And uh, we got a flyer about it. And uh, it started to uh, get us thinking, maybe this is something we might, might want to be a part of. Uh, the reason why was there were two paid trips uh, one to Nashville for four or five days uh, to be a part of this uh, campus activities thing where you would see all this great entertainment and you would be put up at the Grand Old Opry Hotel and it was all paid for. And then I saw the one that was the, that was the big enchilada, the Florida trip. And I said, hey, I'm starting to feel pretty political. <laughs> and so I put my name as a write-in candidate. And in 24 hours, while people had spent weeks working on it, I started a platform. The platform, Vote for Tim, to go to Florida, to be able to go on these trips. I won in a landslide vote. I was excited. I was the student body president of Wabansi Community College. My mom was so proud. So it was time uh, for me to be student body president. I was brought in and uh, had all these uh, student senators and representatives. It was wonderful. And uh, they asked me what I wanted to do. Really didn't have any answer to what I was going to do. I couldn't tell them. I just got in to go on a trip. So meanwhile, down the time, uh, going to school, I uh, had taken up my oath of office and all that. Uh, a couple buddies of, my, uh, of mine, uh, they weren't the same ones, different ones. Yes, I have more than two friends. But uh, uh, we found ourselves not going to class one day and hanging out in one of the commons areas. And we thought it'd be fun to start wrestling. Well, the wrestling went from two or three people to five, six, seven, eight. There was a whole group of us wrestling. And there was a dean's office right across the way there. And when uh, Tim and his buddies wrestled, we get into it. Couches were getting tipped over. Things were happening. People were flying all over the place. And someone thought it would be smart to call security. And uh, they called security. And, of course, uh, I don't know if you know at Wabansi, they've got these young police officers that are learning to be police officers. And I know I'm in trouble with Jim Quist already. But uh, uh, he comes out and he says, you guys got to stop or I'm going to arrest you. Now, I had class with this guy. And I didn't believe him. And I said, if you're going to arrest me, you better go get some backup. And, uh, and that's what he did. He got on his little radio and he says, we got a live one here. You better get out here. And there was a criminal justice class just outside, just down the hallway. And about, I don't know, 10 or 15 guys come running out. And they're excited. First arrest, a bunch of Barney Fifes ready to go. 
And I thought, you know, let's wrestle these guys. Let's, let's have some fun. So we start, I start taking one, two, three down. And I look up and all of a sudden, a guy I hadn't met before pulls out one of those extender sticks. You know what I'm talking about? That, you know, used to hit somebody with. I didn't think they had those at Wabansi. And I said, hey, whoa, I, we're okay. I'll, I'll stop, you know, not thinking anything would happen. Well, I got arrested by Wabansi. My girlfriend, Amanda, had to bail me out $12. $7 for disorderly conduct, $5 for resisting arrest. I kid you not. I, I had to sit in a chair. It was like, it was like supersized detention. They put me in a, a zip tie thing. And no, parents, I, I'm not endorsing any kind of breaking of the law, by the way. It's a, there's a story or there's a reason for this at the end. And, and, what happened was, is a pass along, just so you have some jokes to talk about, uh, about your pastor. But uh, I find out a couple of weeks later, I get a certified note in the, in the, or letter in the mail. It's from Wabansi. I need to go to a uh, board of directors meeting. And uh, so I, I go. My mom finds out about it. She's not happy. What did you do now? You don't even go to the principal. Now you go to a board of directors. And I go and I find out that I've been impeached. They were, uh, un- they were unveiling a new Wabansi place. I can't remember where it was at. It may have even been uh, the-, the Copley branch out there. And I'll never forget. My mom went. She cried. Um, and uh, I'll never forget the, the uh, president said uh, all kinds of, you know, disappointed and-, and rightly so. He should have been. I wasn't being a good role model and things like that. And I'll never forget what happened. Uh, there was a picture taken. And the heading was Wabansi opens new location and the, pi- the picture, whoever put it together in the Beacon News, was Tim Bedall, student body president, being impeached as president. There it is, right there. And there's my mom. You can, I can still remember the picture sitting over in the corner, just kind of sad. My son, he can't do anything right. And so what happens? Well, I was lucked out. Lucked out. Long story, I know. Lucked out. I, uh, my buddy was vice president. My, bro- my buddy wanted me to go on the trip with him. So he finds a way that, and I don't know how this all works, he finds a way that if we get a two-thirds vote, if I can get voted back in, I can be not in a non-executive position, but in a legislative position. I can be a student senator. I said, okay, do it. Make it happen. They make me a student senator. So I go to the first meeting, and a third of the people are upset. And they say, we found out the reason why you're here. We're here to change things. You're here because you want something that comes as a result of that. And I remember thinking, ooh, the president didn't make me feel bad. My mom and dad hadn't made me feel bad. But these people had worked hard. They had an objective, they had a goal, and here I was reigning on their parade for one reason, because I wanted something out of it. I wanted the result of hard work. I wanted the fruit of their labors. I just wanted to go on a trip. They, the, the trip to them was a business trip, not hanging out and having fun on the taxpayer's money. I'm a perfect politician, okay? That's what I wanted. Some of you got that. But... Um, But as a result of that, they were hurt because we had a different thinking. For some of us, the reason why fellowship 
isn't what it needs to be is because you're a lot like me. No, you haven't broke the law. No, you haven't been wrestling. But what you have done is you've placed yourself in a local group of people and you've said, I want the fruit of their labor. What I want is I want to enjoy everything that's happening in this place, the ministry, the friendships, all the involvement, but I'm not going to pour myself into anything. And I will tell you, you don't have fellowship. Yes, you may be a part of one of the most, most wonderful community centers in Sugar Grove, but you don't have fellowship. Because as I told you, fellowship is an active term. It involves two people working together, having the same purpose, having the same goals and objectives. So we have to get our understanding. If we want to have unity, it can't be about me. It can't be about you. But it has to be us giving ourselves over 100% to one another in love, in sincerity of hope that we can do something, even if it's small, to change the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the reason for fellowship. It is for us to work together, to partner together, to do something. Not for us to have Club Med here in Sugar Grove and enjoy our new building and enjoy the staff that we have and enjoy all the good stuff that we do. It is a purpose. There's a reason for it. And so what does that lead us to? It leads us to a second thing this morning uh, from last week. If we want to see this fellowship take place, if we want to have unity in the spirit that Jesus talks about, if we want to live out the life that Paul lived when he visited that home and saw the camaraderie and saw the love, he could have just sat there and said, just keep taking care of me. I'm a new believer. Just keep feeding me. I am still weak and, and one day I'll be strong enough. No, we see right after that, it says immediately he went out and preached. So what does it involve? Our fellowship must involve a second thing and that is a commitment to service. You have to be committed to service. Notice what it says in verse 1 and 2 of Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, and look at what he says, we're servants of Christ Jesus. What do servants do, everybody? Serve. Now look at what he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with who? Elders and deacons. What are the elders and deacons doing? Serving. What are we to be doing together with them? Serving. There's this picture here that we are uh, to be involved in, in service. The life of Christ, please hear me this morning, the life of Christ is a life of service. For by grace you are saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not by any works that we can do. Okay? But what does the next verse say? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, works of service. That's what Paul is saying. The life of Christ is about service. Look at what it talks about. First of all, we see that this commitment to service is to be a priority. It is to be a priority. If we want true fellowship, if we want true unity, if we want to be able to look at one another and say, brother, sister, if we want to help regain uh, strength for one another, to help one another be the best that we can be, it must be a priority to service. Now notice, Paul, it seems, that service was high on his list. Look at his words in verses 3, 4, um, and 5. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always 
pray with joy. Now, you could take it one of two ways when he uses the phrases, every time, in all my prayers, I always pray. It seems that he's using some pretty uh, definitive statements. You know, never, always, those types of words. He says, man, this is all I'm about. This is everything. He says, I'm always doing this. I'm doing it for all of you. And so what does that mean? Number one, he could be exaggerating. What he could be doing is he could be saying, hey, you know, I pray for you when I remember to, but uh, I'm going to tell you, I really pray for you all the time, even though I only pray for you once every uh, four or five days. No, he's saying always. So either he's exaggerating or he's telling the truth and he's saying this partnership that I have with you, this affection I have for uh, each of you, it's serious. It is a priority that every time, Every time you come to remembrance, it says, think about that. Every time I remember you. This isn't one time, well, let's remember the people at Philippi. Bring them back into remembrance. No, every time he remembers them, it's ongoing, it seems. In all his prayers, he prays for them. There's a priority. There's a priority. We have to have a priority when it comes to fellowship. It has to be a part of who we are. It can't be just something we put at the bottom of our calendar, make sure we get involved with the church or with other Christians. It must be a priority. Every time. All the time. Now notice, there's a second thing that, uh, that we see within this. We see that the second element is uh, in regards to, it's not in your outlines, but a deep passion for them. Look at verse 7 for a moment. Look at what he says. He says, it is right for me to feel this way for all of you. Why? Listen to what he says. Since I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart. You want to have a proper priority? Then you get passionate about the people around you. You want to have a priority to reach out to your brothers and sisters in Christ and fellowship when they come to your door, uh, as, uh, as Saul did in Judas's house in Acts 9, that you open the door for him and you say, come on in, sit down and uh, let me take care of you. You know, they're talking pretty bad things about this economy. And I'm going to tell you, there may be a day when a brother and sister in Christ comes to your door with their family and their possessions, and they may possibly say, can we stay with you? What's your response going to be? Judas doesn't even know this person. You're going to know these people quite uh, possibly. And Judas opens the door and lets him in. And for days he's there. He doesn't know how long. He doesn't say, uh, Saul, how long are you going to be here? You know, I'm keeping a track of how much food you eat. I'm keeping track of how many times I have to change the sheets. None of that is said in Luke's story. He's there. And they minister to him. They take care of him. Could you do that? Could that be as much of a priority? It all depends on your passion for the people that are sitting around you and the people that call themselves Christians. Do you have a passion for them? Are you in love with them? Notice what he says here. They're in my heart. This picture is given in this word of a deep love. It comes from within inside, the very center of his being. Can you say that in regards just to not even other Christians in this world, but even with just the people you're sitting around? Can you look around this place and say, I have you in my heart? If you can't, then it will never be a priority in our church. 
Notice who it involves. You say, yeah, I've got it for some. Notice what he says. He says, in my prayers for all of you. I'm not saying just your friends. I'm not just saying the ones uh, who laugh at your jokes or who live in your area. But can you say that of all of us? He says, look at what he says in the text. It's right for me to feel this way about some of you. Is that what your translation says? About a half of you? Three quarters of you? The ones that are actually doing something? What does it say? Um, I didn't hear. All of you. I have you in my heart. He has a passion for him. Notice the next thing that it involves. It involves prayer. He goes on and he says, all right, I've got a priority. I've got a passion. Now here's my prayer. Now notice what he does. He says, I always, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why is it that Paul can say that he prays with joy? It is because he loves them. If you love someone, you're going to have joy when it comes to doing whatever you can to help them. And prayer is one of the best ways we can help one another in Christ. We can't, uh, quite possibly, uh, we can help some of our uh, brothers and sisters that are out of work right now. In fact, that's one of the ways Howard found a job. Howard found a job through one of our guys here at church that said, hey, I know about a job. Let's get you lined up and let's make it happen. There's a job. And some of us can help in that way. But the best way we can help quite possibly is just to be in prayer for them. Not just once, but all the time. Praying for them. If we want this fellowship to grow, and I don't mean numerically, but uh, in, in a real sense of spiritual growth towards one another with love, then it's going to involve prayer. And I'm going to teach you something, what I'm going to call the five-finger prayer. Okay, everybody hold up their hand. Five fingers, okay? You want to pray for one another in a way that uh, is pretty clever and, and creative? Here it is. Go down and work through uh, your fingers and your thumb. You start with your thumb, okay? And when you think about your thumb, of course, when you look here, I, I'm going to put my hand like this. My thumb is the closest thing to me. I want you to pray for those that you find yourself closest with in this fellowship, okay? Whether you serve with them, whether they're in your small group, whether they're uh, involved in, in some sort of uh, ministry or something that you're uh, involved with, Whoever you find yourself most involved with at this church, I want you to look at your thumb and I want you to start naming people and saying, Lord, be with them. Lord, let me love them. Let me take care of them. Let me minister to them. Think about that as your thumb. Okay, the next finger, your index finger. Your index finger, what do we use the index finger to do? Point. I want you to think about that and I want you to remember to pray for those who point you towards God's Word and to God Himself. Who are those? Your teachers, your preachers. I want you to next go to that finger and say, all right, Lord, I want you to pray for, I, I want to pray for Tim, that you would uh, watch over him, that you would protect him, you'd give him time of good study, that you would watch over him so he doesn't get involved in stuff that he shouldn't because that would bring uh, great shame to our church and to uh, the people, that Lord, you would watch over uh, my Sunday school teacher, that they would have good times of study, that you'd watch over our small group leader, uh, Lord, that is helping facilitate and teach and lead uh, in that way. Pray for your teachers. Pray for your children's teachers that are involved in, in teaching. Even right now, you're Awana uh, leaders and teachers in that same way. The next one, it's not good to do. Everyone keep all five fingers up. The next one, your middle finger, we're going to kind of sanctify that one a little bit. 
if you look, which finger is the tallest? The middle finger, okay? The middle finger, I want you to remember those who are over you, your elders, your deacons. Pray for us. Pray that we would lead in a right way, that we'd make right decisions about the church, that we'd be men of prayer, that we'd be men of study, that we would know how to be wise and godly in an unwise and ungodly age. The next finger is the, uh, let's see here, the fourth on your hand. And I did some research on this finger. And did you know this is the weakest finger of all your fingers on your hand? I didn't know that. I would have thought this guy would have been. But it's this one. And when you get to that finger, I want you to pray for those who find themselves weak around you. To pray for those who are out of work. To pray for those who are sick. To pray for those who are struggling, whether with emotional uh, distress with spiritual distress, that finger should remind you. That's where you pick up Keith's prayer email and you say, all right, that is what I need to be praying about for this person and that person. Lord, strengthen them, be with them, help them in their time of need. Lord, let me help them in their time of need as well. And finally, your pinky is the smallest finger of all. And I want you, when you look at that, to remember in light of all these other things, all the fingers, even your thumb, while it's a little shorter, it's bigger than your pinky is, that your pinky reminds you that in our fellowship, every one of us is just a little pinky. That we remember we're, we're not that big on the grand scheme of things. We're just kind of sitting out here on our own, if you will, just a little thing. That let's remember something. What's our place in this church? A lot of us want to be, uh, I don't like doing this, a lot of us want to be uh, the middle finger or the pointing finger. And I'll tell you something, I, I, I have roles on both, of those, on both of those fingers, but you know what? That's who I am. Can God not put someone else in here? Yeah, He's done it for the last 30 years in this place. Every time Tim is sick, someone shows up, right? I'm just a little pinky. And so this should remind us, whether we're teaching, preaching, whether we're directing a ministry, uh, whatever we're doing in this place that everybody loves, remember, we're just a little pinky in the grand scheme of things. Does that help? I hope so. It's a little creative. Cute. I like it. I want you to use that. Pray for one another. Paul says, I'm praying for you. Notice what happens next. There's a partnership. Look at what he says in this partnership. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel... For how long? From the first day, meaning the first uh, time you came to know Christ until now. We've been together. Well, what does that mean? Once we're passionate, when we make a priority, when we begin to pray for one another, something begins to happen. We begin to lock arms and we begin to make certain commitments to one another. And we say, we are together. We're going to go in a certain direction to accomplish a certain goal. There's a partnership. Now notice what the partnership involves. It involves the gospel, not political parties, not uh, baseball teams, not uh, what stores you shop at. We went through all that last week. Our partnership is in the the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we partnership. That's where we team up. So it involves partnership. Now notice what, what is given here. When we join in this partnership, we have to be confident of something. That he who began a good work in us will see it on to completion. What a wonderful word of encouragement. What, what, what Paul is saying is when we get this right and we uh, allow this to take place, we are going to see Jesus Christ himself Carry this work out 
to completion. Whatever God wants of us, it's going to be accomplished. Now, whether we see it or not is up to us in our fellowship and partnership with one another. So Paul says, this is what fellowship involves. Now, notice the scriptures talk about partnership very quickly in the following ways. You say, well, fellowship means we, uh, we're together. Yes, we trust in the same Savior, but involves what the Bible says are these things. We partner when it comes to grace, meaning we're under the same uh, unmerited favor. We partner in life. We give ourselves one, an- uh, one to another, living life together. We partner in faith. We take steps of faith together. We say, Lord, I don't know if we can do this or not, but we're going to believe you that you've led us in this direction. We're going to do it. We partner in prayer. We gather together and we pray and partner our prayers together where two or three are gathered together. There the Lord is with us. And, and it says if we are in agreement in another passage of Scripture, he, he will do as we ask if it's according to His will. So we do it together. We partner together in prayer. We partner together in praise. We don't all sit at home around our uh, computer screens and and uh, have uh, each of us at our own homes and uh, worship together. And you just bring yourself next to the chair and you sing a song. And, and then I preach from my living room to you. Uh, some of you may like that, but, but that's not what we do. We come together and we praise God together. We serve God together. We don't do this by ourselves and say, you take care of this, I'll take care of that. We'll never see each other. We serve God together. We evangelize. We partner together in evangelism. We do that together. The Bible says that we are to separate from the world in a partnership. What that means is that we don't want to be, we want to be in the world, not of the world. And we, we work together to make sure that becomes a, a reality. And finally, we fight spiritual warfare together. We don't fight this war by ourselves. It's not a, just a personal battle. It is a corporate battle that we're a part of. Now, if that is the service that we have to one another, I want you to evaluate very quickly, am I serving in that way? Because if you're not, then you're not being on the, on the good end of creating fellowship. Because it involves one last thing, and I'm going to close out quickly with this, and that is it involves Christian solidarity. It involves Christian solidarity. Uh, they've got service on there. Go with solidarity. S-O-L-I-D-A-R-I-T-Y. Solidarity. Hooked on phonics. Worked for me. Solidarity is defined as the following. The unity of a group that is based on common objectives. Unity of a group that is based on common objectives. This word was made famous by a Polish union uh, in the late 1980s uh, that was protesting communist rule. Do you remember Lech Walesa? That funny name, I remember hearing about that all the time and this uh, trying to stop uh, the work of communism when it came to the labor laws especially in Poland. And all these guys got together. And the thing was, is they came from all different places, all different backgrounds. But the thing that brought them together is they did not like how the communists were forcing labor. They came together. And they didn't just come together because they were all the same. They came together because they had the same objective. They wanted to stop it. Within Paul's prayer, there is solidarity that is created. We are to strive to fulfill common objectives. Very quickly, just listen and write this passage down. Hebrews uh, chapter, uh, let's see here. I forgot to throw it in my notes. I'll find it in a second here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 uh, through 25. Now, I want you to notice the heading in here is the objective that we have. A call to persevere. Listen to what he says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence... 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. What he's saying is we have two things, confidence, a high priest. As a result of those two things, in verse 22, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Therefore, let us hold unswervingly uh, to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Now, how do we do it? Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Well, how do we do that? The writer says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Did you notice the community of faith there? Us, we, all plural. Why? Just very quickly, this is what he says in verse 26. Because if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, there is no sacrifice for sins that is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of the raging fire that consumed the enemies of God. Why do we fellowship? Because we have a goal, and that is to persevere no matter what we face. How do we do it? Let's move quickly. Verse 9 says that our love must grow and develop. Paul says in chapter 1 of Philippians, he says uh, the following. He says, um, is right for you to feel this way. He says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. Let's stop there for a moment. This uh, word love is agape in the Greek. It's an unconditional, sacrificial, Christ-like love. That's the love that we are to have for one another. Now, what does he say? It is to abound more and more, meaning it's to overflow. The love that you have, you're to have Christ-like love for the people that are sitting around you. And it isn't something that you just say, okay, I got agape love. I bought it at Walmart. Now I'm ready to go. I can give that out to people. No, he says, let it overflow. And when it's overflowing, keep letting it overflow. Is that your approach when you come and are a part of any fellowship activity? And I don't just mean fellowship activity, any activity in the church that your love is overflowing to the people around you. This church has to be known for its love. Why? Because Jesus says uh, they will know that you are Christians by what? Your love. Your love for one another. It has to uh, grow. This word abound means in the present tense. It's ongoing. It's like a geyser. It's to take place. What does it look like? Well, look at 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8 sometime. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious. It does not boast. Love doesn't uh, go after selfish ambitions. But love uh, sacrifices. All of those that Paul writes about in love, that is what we are to do. Love hopes for all things. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. You say, well, those are just for the marriage relationship. That's for any relationship, any partnership that you're a part of. Steve Brown uh, wrote this. He says, everyone that belongs to Jesus and loves Jesus, therefore belongs and loves everybody that belongs and loves to Jesus. You say, I love Jesus. I can't stand that fool. You don't love Jesus. How can you love God in heaven if you don't love your brother? First John says. Second thing. 
Our knowledge deepens in understanding. Look at the second part of uh, verse 9. He says, abound more and more in what, Paul? In knowledge and depth of insight. This word knowledge is the word epignosis. It means full knowledge. The idea here is not intellectual knowledge. We don't sit here and just have academic uh, classes. But it is an experiential knowledge. We take the Word of God, and what we do is we apply it to our lives, and we apply it to how we experience it. I will tell you that is how, that is my uh, process of preaching. People say, well, how do you preach? What's your, uh, what's the way you do it? I take the Word of God, and I funnel it through me, and I shout it out to anybody who will listen, and hopefully it's a blessing. It's experiential. The things I experience are, are seen through the Word of God and how the Word of God tells me how I ought to live and I apply it. But it involves something else. This word knowledge also means moral perceptions. Taking the Word of God and making it become your antenna in the world. So what happens is you kind of look like a reindeer. And what happens, you start studying the Word of God and antenna come out. And when evil comes, you go, beep, 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 beep. No, that's bad, bad, bad. Come over here. Oh, this is good. This is good. How much antenna do you have? You have a lot? Do you have a little? It all depends on your deepening in the Word of God. This is important. This is important for two sets of people. Parents, teach your children the uh, full knowledge of God. Why? So they can be able to understand and be able to perceive what's going on around them. But also, I'll say this, this is also true for the older generation. I saw, uh, I was a part of this last week, uh, end here at Cedar Lake, uh, a man came up a little younger than I am and uh, younger in the faith. And he says, Tim, can I talk with you? And I said, yeah. He says, I want to talk to you. I have one question for you. W- what is sexual immorality? And how do I know if I've crossed the line? I said, that's, a, that's an awesome question. And you know what? I thought, well, he's asking me because I'm the preacher. But you know what I noticed? He went around to every one of the men and he asked that question. And you know what? I, I went back and I said, what are you doing? He says, I want to hear from older guys who have fought those battles before to have an understanding. So I know when to stop and, and to know what to do in that time. You know what he was asking for? He was asking the men around him, give me full knowledge. Give me depth of insight. I want to know. The next thing we see is what it produces, a heart that discerns what is best. Good, strong fellowship is a fellowship that studies the Word, that knows the Word, that experiences the Word, and turns around and takes it. And it allows us to discern what is best, what is pure and what is blameless. You want to know what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing? Get involved in a fellowship that focuses in on knowing the full knowledge of God. So we can discern what is best. This idea of discernment here in the text literally is a word that a jeweler would use after he has worked on a precious stone to be able to discern whether it's of good quality or not. He says, I want to know what's best, what's pure, what's blameless. That's what we need to be doing. We need to be helping one another when it comes to that knowledge. Finally, we see that this life then helps us uh, display the fruit of righteousness. Why are we involved in Christian fellowship? Why are we involved in growing one another up in the faith? Two things. Number one, the fruit is to show each other the potential we have in Christ Jesus. I look at some of your lives and I say, I want to be just like them. Remember what Mike said? I want to be the best father, the best Christian that I can be. Why? So my son can look at me and say, that's Jesus. We serve, we strive so that people can look at us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, and can say, 
if he's able to do it. He's just a plain old dirty sinner just like me. And if God can change him and use him, then he can use me to show potential. It's one final thing. It shows the world the power of Christ Jesus. When we start living like this, the world starts looking around and saying, wow, there's something here. We have a man who's been attending our church for a while. He's never given himself over to Jesus Christ. We love him. Great having him. He's got a lot of suspicions about Christianity and about what we're doing. But I've been noticing in this man's life what is transpiring is he's looking at us. He's watching how we live. He's seeing the life that has been changed, lives that have been changed. And you know what we're doing? We all keep pointing back to the cross. We keep saying, that's what did it. That's what did it. And he keeps hearing about this, this fruit of the cross. And we keep saying, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. And we don't talk about what book we read. We don't talk about who we're following. We don't talk. We say, it's all about Jesus, nobody of this world. And you know what's happening? This man's life is being changed. Because we're producing fruits of righteousness. He's sitting there going, there's something different about these guys. There's something different about these people. And he's yearning more and more for it. I see him moving more and more, getting more involved in conversation, more involved in areas of uh, ministry, uh, watching and seeing things happen, getting more involved in the different things that are going on. Why? Because he's seeing in us the fruits of righteousness that come. It allows us to show the power of God. What's fellowship to you this morning? Is it coffee, donuts before an ABF? Or is it a striving to be one in mind, spirit, to be one in objective, to be one in love? I will tell you something. This is what the church has to focus in on. To take what we know of God and His Word and apply it to our lives and experience it and to produce it, first of all, to those around us so that we can go out of this place and show it to the world. Let's pray. Father God, I wanna, Lord, I just want to come before you. Lord, I want to take this time to, to close out our, our, our morning by saying, Lord, we need your help in this. Lord, we need your strength in this. We can't produce uh, um, the good things of fellowship as a result of uh, our own desires and our own pursuits. Lord, we uh, pray that, uh, uh, that it wouldn't be about us, that it would be about you. That would be about your work, about your service, about what you've done on the cross. Lord, that you would be at work in every one of us, strengthening us, leading us, guiding us to produce your love, to produce your ministry, to produce your um, affections towards the people around us. Lord, let this place be filled with love. But Lord, there's times we have to speak the truth but you say in love. There are times that we have to rebuke, but you say in love. There are times we have to discipline, but you say in love. Father, we know fellowship isn't always easy, Lord, uh, but you call us to it and you say what is produced out of it will bring people to Christ. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Oh Lord, I pray that Sugar Grove and the com uh, surrounding communities would know that this place is full of Christians not by our sign or by the cross on the building, but because of our love for one another that pours out of this place and impacts the lives of the people around us. That's what happened for Paul. And it changed him. And Lord, let us change but one individual 
because of our love. It says at the end of this, Lord, that you would be brought glory. And that's why we do it. Not for us, but for you to receive glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. We're going to have the band play. I want to ask the two guys that came up and and were baptized this morning. I'm going to ask you guys to come up here. And the best way we can show fellowship is to welcome uh, people after they've made a public uh, profession of faith in the way of baptism. So before you leave and head out uh, quickly uh, to ABFs, come down, uh, Mike and Tim, and uh, be welcomed in as new baptized uh, members of the body of Christ. You are now able to go in the grace and knowledge of Christ Jesus.